0: Earlier in the week, I spoke about a transforming aspiration in our practice and in our lives. That is the aspiration of what is called bodhijitta. That's the Sanskrit word for awakened mind or awakened heart. And it refers to that motivation or aspiration that both our practice and our lives (coughs) be not for ourselves alone, but for the benefit and the welfare, for the awakening of all beings. Tonight I'd like to elaborate a little bit on bodhijitta. Considering two questions. How can we understand this aspiration to live for the benefit of others, how it works? How can we understand that more deeply? and how we can actually begin to put it into practice. Is there a possibility really of transforming ourselves in this way? So what does it mean to say that we practice for the benefit of all? When we sit here, we're watching our breath, lifting, moving, placing, there's not an obvious connection. And so, is there any relevance of what we're doing here in our practice to this wish to be living for the welfare of all beings? I think it happens in two ways. Over time in practice, it becomes increasingly clear that the more deeply we understand ourselves, the more deeply we understand everybody else. Now although our particular stories are all quite different, we have different backgrounds and conditioning and education and parents and there's a whole range of differences and yet the nature of the mind, the nature of the body is just the same in all of us. The nature of emotions the nature of thought it became very clear in traveling around a lot in teaching retreats and it struck me especially when Sharon and I were teaching in Russia especially the first time we went there because the culture was so different a very different background. We were walking in Red Square in Moscow And the person we were walking with said that there, some relative, this was in the old days, but some relative had been imprisoned like for 20 years or 30 years, 40 years, for making a joke about Lenin's tomb. Just making a joke to a friend, you know, and was overheard. It's a very different culture, you know, where that's the conditioning that people are brought up with. And yet, when we got into the retreat and started teaching, it was the same stuff. It was the same knee pain and the same wandering mind. And it was very striking to see the universality. Now, anger is the same, whether we're sitting here in Bari or we're in Burma or we're in Russia. The nature of anger is the same, the nature of love is the same, the nature of generosity is the same. So, as we go more deeply in our own practice, we begin to see very clearly the basic commonality of the human experience. We see the commonality of awareness, we see the commonality of suffering, we see the commonality of the potential, the possibility of freedom. And this understanding really awakens within us a great deal of compassion. We can relate more and more easily to the suffering of others because we see it in ourselves. It's no different. You know, Upandita, who was our Burmese teacher and very, very venerable monk in Burma, very strict and demanding. In Pali the word for suffering is dukkha and the word for happiness is sukha. So he used to say when you do metta practice it brings you close to sukha. When you do vipassana it brings you close to dukkha. (laughs) And I think that's true. And yet out of that, out of that coming close to suffering really opening to it in ourselves, we are really opening to it in everyone else. And that's the seed of compassion, seeing the commonality. We also understand, through our own experience, the potential for freedom. You know, in some way of expressing it, we begin to realize that every sentient being, you could say, has the potential for enlightenment, the potential for awakening, the potential for Buddhahood. It's quite amazing that in the silence of a retreat we actually begin to feel more and more deeply the sense of connection because we're connecting more and more deeply within ourselves. it's a common experience at the end of a retreat. There are a hundred people gathered together, many of you don't know each other, and it's quite amazing how at the end of a week or ten days or eighteen days, the feeling of closeness, in silence, never having spoken to one another, because of this understanding of the shared experience, the shared Dharma, the shared truth. So actually, as we are doing our practice, it awakens this sense of bodhicitta of interconnectedness. There's a second way that our practice benefits everyone else. And that comes about through the transformation of how we are in the world. If we're kinder, and more accepting, and more loving, and there's that that much more kindness and acceptance and love in the world. If we're less reactive, less judgmental, less greedy, there's that much less of those forces in the world. Meher Baba was a great one of the great Indian saints. And he spent some time in the West. This picture is coming to mind, but you see it. He 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 looked very much like Alfred E. Newman. (laughs) (laughs) And (laughs) his basic message was of love. This, this, was his, this was his teaching, and this is what he wrote about it. And it's very much... Uh, it's very much about how we are of necessity affects everyone else. Love has to spring spontaneously from within and it is in no way amenable to any form of inner or outer force. Love and coercion can never go together. But though love cannot be forced on anyone, it can be awakened in them through love itself. Love is essentially self-communicative. Those who do not have it catch it from those who do. True love is unconquerable and irresistible and goes on gathering power and spreading itself until it eventually transforms everyone who touches. I love that line, those who do not have it, catch it from those who do. (laughs) So to the degree that we awaken that in ourselves, it cannot help but affect the people around us, the world around us. Something like, or an image, being in the middle of a sea in a boat and there's a storm, and everybody's panicking. If there is one wise, calm person on that boat, that person can bring everyone to safety. Our life on this planet is like being on that boat. Can we be those people? And who have developed love, who have developed calm, who have developed wisdom, that actually brings everyone to safety. This is the working of bodhijitta, this is the aspiration. As I mentioned last time, bodhijitta becomes particularly powerful when we make it the conscious motivation for our practice when we really undertake our practice with this in mind. And so one way of watering the seed within us might be at the beginning of a sitting or the beginning of the day. Just reflecting, may I attain liberation, may I attain awakening, may I attain enlightenment for the welfare, for the benefit, for the awakening of all. So we remind ourselves and at the end of a sitting, the merit of the practice can be dedicated. May the merit of this sitting or of this walking be dedicated to the happiness, to the welfare of all beings. Watering that seed makes this aspiration, makes this motivation become stronger in us. It has transformed the quality of my practice and of many others. Because what it does, it puts our practice into a much larger context. So that instead of dealing with the ups and downs that we all go through in the context of one's own individual struggles, all of a sudden we've put it in this vast field. Yes, everything I'm doing, all the difficulties and struggles and highs and lows of my practice, it's all in the context of being for the benefit of all. Very different. It really changes how we do it. It's a way of connecting. So there's a question which follows from all of this. And the question is, how actually can we effect this transformation in ourselves? How do we become more loving? How do we become less judgmental? More peaceful, more aware. Even after the first day of a retreat, this is by way of encouragement for those of you who just came, (laughs) and certainly after being here a week, you have all had the first and very essential insight. And there's no one here, I think, who has not had this yet. And that is the insight of how frequently and often our mind wanders.
1: <laughs>
0: has anybody not seen this?
1: <laughs>
0: is anybody under the illusion <laughs> that the mind actually is still and steady? And probably not. <laughs> Because it's the first thing that we become aware of as we, as we begin to settle down and to look inward and observe what's going on. We see this tremendously habituated pattern in the mind. You know, a thought comes after a breath or two and there's a whole train of association and this, get on this train and it takes us on this incredible journey. And we don't even know that we're on the train. You know, we've gotten on, we don't know where it's going and then somehow we end up in some strange new environment. It's quite amazing. Yeah, and this happens countless times a day, countless times an hour. (coughs) The mind is so slippery. No In and out, rising, falling, plans, memories, judgments, get caught up in emotional dramas. And what's so amazing is they don't even have to be pleasant. (laughs) And very often they're not. You know, where we start reliving old hurts and pains. and We can get caught up in very painful things getting lost again and again. And in all of this, there's a strong sense of contraction when we're lost in these thoughts. Strong sense of contraction, strong sense of self, of I. The Buddhists from the discourses, this is from the Dhammapada, he said, your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own unguarded thoughts. But once mastered, not even your mother or father can help you as much as the mind that is tamed. This is a very important thing to learn that the true source of our happiness or suffering really is contained within us. It's not difficult to be mindful, it's difficult to remember to be mindful. Now it's this first insight into the fickleness of the wandering mind, of how easily it goes off, that really leads us to understand how important it is to stabilize the awareness. This is the central or a-central task of our lives. This is not an insignificant thing. Because the worlds we create in ourselves and the worlds we create around us all have their origin in the mind. Now you're sitting here, between one breath and the next, how many different worlds have been created? It's amazing, the activity, the endless activity. So what is the nature of the training? how can we begin to stabilize the awareness buddha used the image of taming the wild monkey he lived in a kind of agrarian jungle environment so monkeys were very prevalent and do you remember seeing monkeys in the zoo you're out Our minds are like that, they're kind of jumping here and jumping there. How is it possible to actually tame it? How can we learn to stay awake rather than go to sleep in the dream of our thoughts? The essence of the training, just the very heart of it, is a quality of mind, a quality of awareness called bare attention. Why is it called bare? Because it's simple, it's direct, it's non-interfering. It's not judging, it's not making stories about things. Attention means mindfulness, awareness, not forgetting. So bare attention is that simple, non-judgmental, non-interfering awareness. really a balance of alertness, active alertness, and receptive openness. Something like listening to music, and when we're relaxed, settled back, listening to some of our favorite music, does it feel like that's a strain or a struggle? Probably not, or you wouldn't do it. You know, it's quite an enjoyable experience. You settle back, maybe you close your eyes, and the music plays, and the mind relaxes into the awareness of that music. There's no efforting, and yet the mind is alert. Most likely you don't listen like this. Oh, let me hear it a little better. (laughs) You know, we don't lean into it. We're alert, but very receptive, very relaxed, This is the quality of bare attention. Can we be with all the sounds in the room like that? Can we be with our breath like that? As if we're listening to music. We're not looking for any particular experience. This is a very hard thing to internalize (coughs) because we are so addicted to good or pleasant or high experiences, that it's very hard to let go of that in a spiritual practice. We are not looking for particular experiences. The practice is this open receptivity, this bare attention towards whatever appears, whatever reveals itself. So there are a few tools in practice which help us find this place of balance. You know, it's like tuning a radio. You know, there's static on one side, static on another side, and then when we hit it right, it comes in clear. There's attachment on one side, there's aversion on another side, when we hit it right, there's just the simple bare attention. What makes it so difficult is its simplicity. So there are a few tools in our practice which help. And these are very much like the techniques of practice. One of them is the use of a primary object of attention, a primary focus. And that can be the use of sounds, it's the breath, it's walking. The reason we've been emphasizing sound as a way of easing into the practice is because it's very obvious That when the mind is undistracted, the awareness of hearing happens completely without effort. I mean, have you noticed that? When you sit and you're simply present, sounds appear and they're known. And we're not causing the sound to arise and we're not causing the awareness to happen. It's a natural process that's happening when we're undistracted. See if it's possible to bring this understanding to the awareness of the breath or the movement of a step. We don't have to do anything to create the breath. And we don't have to do anything to be mindful of it. If you settle back, relax, as if you're listening to music, the breath is coming by itself. When we're undistracted, that breath will be known by itself. We can learn a lot about our minds by noticing the relationship we have to the breath. So you might think, oh, in, out, in, out, all day long, this is getting boring. Actually, when we learn how to look carefully, it reveals a lot. Do we want the breath to be a certain way? Are we, are we feeling it with that in mind? Not simply settled back, letting it come, but are somehow we engaging with it with some kind of expectation? That should be noticed. It's very delicate, the quality of our effort. Notice the quality of right effort. Well, notice the quality of effort to see if it's right when we're with the breath because it's a very fine line. If there's no intentionality to stay with the breath, the mind will just space out, it will get lost. And yet if there's an efforting to be with the breath, it gets tight, it gets tense, we get into a struggle. We need to find that place of ease. You might also be slightly impatient. I've noticed this a lot when I sit. You know, I'm with the breath, and just a tinge of impatience, which pulls the next breath in. So instead of just sitting totally relaxed in this effortless, open, spacious awareness, which receives everything, like in, out, or rising, falling, rising, falling, rising. <laughs> you know, it's like, It's that moment which throws us off balance. Can we settle back? Settle back into the moment, let it come in its own time. It's finding the balance of alert, non-doing. That's the art of the practice. Alert, non-doing. So this is the first tool, working with a primary object, because it really helps to stabilize the attention, to tame the wild monkey a bit. The second tool of practice that we use is the tool or technique of mental noting. It's important to learn how to use this skillfully, because if it's used unskillfully, it becomes a big burden. Mental noting is a tool, but one tool, which it's not, is a hammer. Don't use it like a hammer. Ow. <laughs> because that really obscures everything, it throws the mind off balance. Sometimes people say they use the mental noting and it just, it, after a while it becomes very mechanical. You know, it's going on in the mind, you might be you know, outside walking, but the note will still be going rising, falling, rising, falling. (laughs) And so people begin to, well, what's the point of this? It's really mechanical. That experience actually is very useful because the clarity of seeing how mechanical the noting is, is revealing to us that our connection to the moment is very weak. Without the noting, we could well be walking with that same looseness of attention and not know it. But when you're walking and the noting is completely unrelated, it's like, that's like a wake-up bell. That's, saying, well, that's our mindfulness bell. It's really saying, pay attention, but the mind is off. Watch the tone of the note. The tone of the note often reveals the quality of our mind that may be going unnoticed. Is there a tone of judgment? Is there a tone of impatience? Is there a tone of aversion? Bang, bang, bang. <laughs> <laughs> That's telling us something about our minds. Pay attention to that. When we're very present, when we're really connected, maybe the noting is not necessary. You know, just leave it for a while. Let it go. Just be in the flow of experience. Even then, even at those times though, every once in a while, use it intermittently. I found that sometimes just when I drop a note in, now I'm sitting and it's going along very smoothly, I feel clear and awake and alert right with what's happening. But then periodically I'll just drop in a note, you know, or a little string of notes. And what I find is that very often even when things seem to be going very smoothly, the noting can serve to cut a level of identification with what's going on that I had not even noticed was there. So it's really, it can be a very effective cutting through tool, cutting through any unnoticed level of attachment or identification. You want to play with it see when it's useful, see when it may not be necessary. You could also work with the note, and this this is another interesting experiment in practice, you could see the note itself as another arising experience. So you're noting in, out, arising, falling, and you're aware of the note as simply something else arising. And that helps free the mind from becoming the noter, from establishing a sense of self in the one who's noting we see that it's just another arising experience as well. Okay, primary object, mental noting, another tool in practice to awaken and nourish this quality of bare attention is one of the great gifts of the retreat, and that is slowing down. It's such a relief to finally slow down. You know, our lives and our culture is so speedy. And we often don't even realize it because we're just in it. And that's how we've been brought up and that's... This became very apparent to me teaching in Australia and New Zealand. It became apparent watching the news on TV. Because I watched the news in Australia and it was really slow. (laughs) You know how in this kind of In Australia, it was just one kind of story and then a local story. And And then I went to New Zealand. That was a step beyond. (laughs) Things were really slow. It's actually nice just to slow down a bit. And in terms of the practice, it is tremendously helpful because it allows us to see with much greater clarity Slowing down does not mean holding yourself back because that's a kind of tension. It's not holding ourselves back, it's settling back. It's just settling back into the moment and not rushing, of taking care. It allows for the <coughs> continuity of awareness so that we begin to treat every experience with equal attention. No one thing is more important than anything else. Getting up from your cushion is as important, or as unimportant, as anything that happens while you're sitting. Why make a distinction? Our life is not broken up in that way. The practice can be seamless. Slowing down helps us see that. I'd like to read you something about careful attention. It was written about a great Swiss naturalist, Louis Agassiz, who lived in the last century. This is a story about his training, his students. His initial interview at an end, Agassiz asked the students when they would like to begin. The answer was now the student was immediately presented with a dead fish. Usually a very long dead, pickled, <laughs> evil-smelling specimen, personally selected by the master from one of the wide-mouthed jars that lined his shelves. The fish was placed before the student in a tin pan. They were told to look at the fish, whereupon Agassiz would leave, not to return until later in the day, if at all. So Samuel Scudder, one of the students, described this experience as one of his life's memorable turning points. This is, this is Scudder's description. In ten minutes I had seen all that could be seen in that fish, but half an hour passed, an hour, another hour. The fish began to look loathsome. I turned it over and around, looked it in the face, Ghastly. From behind, beneath, above, sideways, at three-quarters view, just as ghastly. I was in despair. I might not use a magnifying glass. Instruments of all kinds were prohibited. My two hands, my two eyes, and the fish. It seemed a most limited field. I pushed my finger down its throat to feel how sharp the teeth were. I began to count the scales in the different rows until I was convinced that that was nonsense. At last, a happy thought struck me. I would draw the fish, and now, with surprise, I began to discover new features in the creature. When Agassiz returned later and listened to Scudder recount what he had observed, his only comment was that the young man must look again. (laughs) I was piqued, I was mortified, still more of that wretched fish. But now I set myself to my task with a will and discovered one new thing after another. The afternoon passed quickly and when toward its close, the professor inquired, do you see it yet? No, I replied. I am certain I do not, but I see how little I saw before. The day following, having thought of the fish through most of the night, Scudder had a brainstorm. <laughs> the fish, he announced to Agassiz, had symmetrical sides with paired organs. Of course, of course, Agassiz said, obviously pleased. Scudder asked what he might do next, and Agassiz replied, Oh, look at your fish. <laughs> In Scudder's case, the lesson lasted a full three days. Look, 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 was the repeated injunction and the best lesson he ever had, Scudder recalled. A legacy of inestimable value, which he could not buy, with which he could not part. Slowing down helps us to do that. It helps us to look in that way. I have sad news for you. We are that fish. (laughs) Loathsome wretched. (laughs) Can we spend our time here looking, learning to look? You know, in some way that's what the practice is. It's really learning to look, learning to see. But we need to slow down. Otherwise we just run right over the, the heart of the experience. A common experience on retreat, through this kind of looking, is that very ordinary things really become very magically alive. Now when we're still, when our mind, when our heart is calmed down and slowed down, The smallest things, suddenly, you know, the texture on a rock or just the branches of a tree. It's simple things that we pass by, we usually run by countless times in a day, all of a sudden, we are seeing. So this is the great beauty, the great gift of being on retreat, being in silence, slowing down. The slowing down, and it's the silence. Powerful reflection for us. Just by being in silence, we see so much. As our awareness becomes stronger, as we learn to see, as we learn to look, and the day after day. More and more about our minds, about our bodies, about our experience is revealed. In the same way that more and more was revealed to that student, Scudder. We begin to increasingly cut through the stories about our experience and live in the immediacy of the experience itself. In one of the interview groups today somebody mentioned something which is very, I think, common and characteristic to all of our experience and so I wanted to just mention it because it really illustrates this point. They were saying how sitting in the hall and hearing somebody cough, how the mind, so we'd cough repeatedly, and then how the mind would just go off on this judgment and aversion and a whole story. Then we started talking about what actually was conditioning that aversion, that judgment. It wasn't the person coughing because the ear does not hear person, does not hear cough. The ear hears sound and then the mind thinks that's a person, that's a person coughing, why don't they do this, this, and this? Do you see the difference between the direct experience of the sound and the story, the concept which the mind then creates around it? This is a critical distinction in practice because for the most part in our practice and in our lives we are living in the stories that we make up we're living in endless mind-created worlds. And to the extent that we don't see that, we're imprisoned by them. And to the extent that we do see that, we become aware of the mind's story-making power. We see it as being just that and come back very easily. Oh, hearing, hearing, hearing. It's not a problem. Two of the biggest stories, the greatest stories ever told are the stories we create of past and future. How much of your day was spent in the past or in the future? Probably a lot. Because most of our thoughts are in that story. I really love a line of St. Augustine. When he said, if the past and future really exist, where are they? <laughs> through our practice, through a refining of bare attention, of just paying attention to our experience moment to moment, we begin to see very directly, very clearly, that our entire experience of past and future is as a thought in the present moment. That's the only way we experience it. To see this is tremendously liberating, because we are carrying these stories around, you know, this is a little mixed metaphor, but carrying us these stories on our shoulders. You know, they burden us in our lives, because we're not seeing that it is a mental construct. notice the difference and this is something we can do in our practice and have endless opportunities to do it notice the difference in your experience when the mind is lost in some drama some story, some mind created world and then notice the experience of when we awaken from that and recognize it's simply a thought. You must have had that. You know, as you're sitting, you're with the breath, you're lost in a thought of something or other, and then in some moment we awaken, and we realize, oh, that's just a thought. It's really like awakening from a dream, you know, and there's that sense, ah, sense of relief, of letting go, of the mind again becoming spacious, let out of that prison, Now, right in this moment, it's very critical, because you can do one of two things. We can either become very judgmental about the fact that we were lost again, and this is a common tendency, and the mind gets lost for the 10,000th time in a sitting, Oh, well, there it goes again. Or, we can take delight in the experience of awakening. For some reason our minds tend to the first. I recommend the latter. Every time we awaken from being lost in a thought, don't let that moment slip by. Now often people become aware that they've been thinking and just hurry right back to the breath. Just take a moment to recognize the experience of being awake to that thought. Because it really connects us to the power of wakeful awareness. We see what is the natural state of mind. So it's a very powerful moment and it comes many, many times in a sitting. Don't overlook it. Very often, people misunderstand the purpose of meditation, and I've heard this countless times through different questions. For some reason, people have the or can harbor the belief that meditation means not thinking, that if my meditation were good, thoughts wouldn't come. That is not accurate. It's not about not thinking. It's about not being lost in thought. Our practice is to learn to be aware of them rather than lost in them. It's not about somehow having them not come. There's a wonderful ancient Korean Zen master. I think he lived in the 11th century. His name was Shinul. And there's a wonderful book of his teachings called Tracing Back the Radiance. He said, don't be afraid of your thoughts. Only take care lest your awareness of them is tardy. Don't be afraid of your thoughts. Only take care lest your awareness of them is tardy. That's what our practice is about. It's being so present, so alert, that as thoughts appear in the mind, we notice them. We say, yes, that's a thought. Why is this so crucial? So what if we're lost in thought? The problem is that it's not that we simply stay lost in thought, but in very many circumstances we're also acting them out. And so what's happening in our lives is we're acting out this play of conditioning. Our thoughts all come because of our particular conditioning. When we're not aware that they're simply thoughts, We act them out, why is there so much suffering in the world? And When we look at the places in the world and in our own lives where there's so much suffering, what is it that's happening? It's really people acting out the forces of greed, of fear, of hatred, of anger. It's this this conditioning that's not only out there. These forces are at work in our own minds as well, and this is the great possibility in practice, that we actually can become aware of them rather than lost in them. To the degree that we're lost, we have no choice. To the degree that we're aware of them, we see them come, we can let them go. Let us give a very simple example of how you can work with this in your practice, a very prevalent conditioning, and I don't know why this is so, but... and maybe it's a Western thing, I'm not exactly sure, but a very prevalent conditioning is the judging mind. You know, we judge ourselves, we judge others, and very often we're really caught up in the judgments that come. There was one particular retreat, I was doing a self retreat here at IMS and I was sitting in the dining room and I was just watching my mind. It had a judgment about every single person who walked in. You know, I didn't like what they wore, or they were walking too fast, or walking too slow, or something or other. There were so many that at a certain point all I could do was smile. That was the illuminating moment. Because as soon as I could smile at them, they lost all their power. Because before that I was either buying into them and believing them, or condemning myself for having them. Judging my oh, I shouldn't be having so many judging thoughts. In that moment, when we can see all of these arisings simply as empty thought and smile. They lose all their power. There's one principle in practice and in life which can serve us very well and that is the understanding that the only power thoughts have are the power we give them. That's a very uh, freeing understanding. The power of awareness, the power of bare attention allows us to see what's happening so we're not lost, we're not simply acting out, and we can actually make some wise choices in our lives. Now coming to retreat is very much reflected in some words by Thoreau when he described why he went to Walden Pond. He said, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately and front only the essential facts of life and see if I could learn what it had to teach and not when I came to die, discover that I had not lived."
1: Yeah.
0: This, is, this is the retreat, and we come really to discover ourselves. Another aspect of awareness, of bare attention, which is tremendously illuminating, is to see its universal application. There is nothing, there is no experience which falls outside of it. It's very much like the power of a mirror. The mirror doesn't choose, oh, I'll reflect this and not reflect that. (laughs) The nature of the mirror is to reflect whatever comes in front of it. The nature of awareness is to know whatever appears. Can we connect with this mirror-like quality, this mirror-like wisdom of the mind? What this implies is an acceptance, and openness, to both pleasant and unpleasant experiences. To connect with this quality, this clarity of mind, we need to be willing to settle back and open to all the pleasant things, all the unpleasant things. In the Taoist, in the Chinese, uh, there's an expression, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. Can we open to that whole range? You know, one of the times we were in Burma, uh, actually, every time we were in Burma, they were, they were doing a lot of construction and they were banging right outside my room. And they were banging, mad. they were straightening these, uh, I forget what you call them, those, those steel rods that you I don't know, whatever they're called. (laughs) They they were were trying to straighten them, you know, they had been bent, so they're just knocking metal on metal, you know what a clangy, unpleasant sound that is, all day long, you know, this was going on for days and days and days, so I (laughs) is everything connected or not? (laughs) So I went to Upandita and, you know, I was kind of complaining about all this noise and this is the monastery and why can't they be quiet? And he just said, you know, were you mindful? Did you note it?
1: <laughs>
0: and I thought, as probably you are thinking now, uh, well, he's just trying to make the best of a bad situation, you know, this unpleasant, disturbing sound, you might as well note it. But that was not it at all. He was suggesting in that comment that it doesn't make the slightest bit of difference what object, what appearance is arising. From the perspective of awareness, it is absolutely all equal. Our practice is not about having more and more pleasant experience, but this is a very hard one to get, because we are so addicted to pleasant experience. Our practice is about this mirror-like wisdom of awareness that can be open, that receives, that knows whatever it is that arises. There's a Goldstein law of practice, which has come out of twenty years of things like that sound in Burma, the noise in Burma. <laughs> 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 so it took a lot to arrange the quiet A lot of planning goes into these talks. (laughs) The Goldstein Law of Practice. If it's not one thing, it's another. (laughs) You know, we're with one experience and we're just so anxious to have it be something. It doesn't matter. It's not one thing, it's another. And our experience is just this unfolding. Sometimes it's pleasant, sometimes it's unpleasant. Our practice is not about trying to change that. Our practice is about settling back into the natural quality. We're not creating awareness. There's nothing you have to do to produce it. It's simply settling back into that undistracted quality of mind. There's a great ease, a great rest, a great freedom in that. One of my Tibetan teachers, he had a wonderful little image. He said, the price of gold goes up and down, but the nature of gold remains the same. You know, if you said, now you're not listening, but on in the morning listening to NPR and the news, at certain points they just uh, Mentioned the gold, the gold fix. <laughs> you no, know, it's up, it's down. Does the gold change? No. The gold remains exactly what it had always been. But the price goes up and down. Our experiences are like the price of gold. Sometimes they're up and it's pleasant, sometimes it's down and it's painful. But the nature of gold is the awareness. The awareness of the mind does not change. So, if we can let go of our fixation on the price and settle back into the innate awareness of the mind, there's a tremendous sense of ease. Okay, so we hear about this, this quality of bare attention, this mirror-like wisdom of awareness and think it's a good idea, it actually takes some energy and effort to recognize and to stabilize. Because as you've noticed, going back to the very first insight, our mind wanders a lot. And it's obscured a lot by being lost in the various thoughts and feelings. So it takes a certain quality of commitment, of energy. The Pali word for effort is virya. But I don't like the translation effort so much because especially for us in the West, we get very tied up in expectation and ambition and striving and tension. Now it becomes efforting. The word I like much better to describe this quality is courage or strength of heart. That willingness to be with whatever is arising with steadfastness, with clarity. And it's a challenge because sometimes we reach the edges of what's comfortable. And right at that edge is where we need the courage. Can we be with this too? Can we open to this too? I know that you ever read this book that... uh, it's, it's quite an old book. Written by a psychiatrist working uh, I didn't know whether it was a mul- working with a multiple personality or schizophrenia, but anyway the, the patient the- the cl- patient was in the therapy and saying how difficult it was, you know, just difficult work to do, and the psychiatrist said, I never promised you a rose garden it's not always a rose garden. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's delightful, but sometimes we're really at an edge, we're at a boundary. That's where this quality of courage is needed. It's just the opposite of sloth and torpor, which is a kind of retreating from difficulty. This is entering into whatever's arising. The Dharma is vast. No, it's not about a 10 day retreat or an 18 day retreat. This understanding of the mind and the body and the nature of awareness, that empty clarity of mind, it's a vast undertaking. And we can do it all with a sense of great inspiration built on the foundation of bodhicitta that we're doing this work of understanding not only to free ourselves but for the benefit and the the freedom, the awakening of all others. Let's sit for a few minutes.